Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. Man, I feel like I haven't done this for a while. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. And Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And we have a special guest this week, former host of the Ruby Rogues podcast, Jason Sweat. Hey, guys. Good to be back again. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Yeah, we missed you. Missed of course, you you're doing your own show now, aren't you? Yeah, I am. Ruby Testing Podcast. Nice. So uh, do you want to just uh, tell us a little bit about that and anything else that you've got going? Sure. So I, my kind of hub of everything I do is codewithjason.com. My main focus for like the last year, almost year and a half, has been teaching Rails testing. So that's kind of my niche I've carved out for myself, and I'll probably be focusing on that stuff for the foreseeable future. So if you want to read about Rails testing, learn more about that, I'm the guy for that. Nice. Very cool. Well, uh, we, we got you on to talk about converting fat models into skinny poros. Yeah. I, I hate saying poros. I like reading poros because it's short, but I hate saying it. So do you want to... Why? Just the word bothers you for some reason? Yeah. Yeah, it feels like a shorthand. So this idea of, to kind of segue like from the testing stuff to this Poro idea, the two things kind of overlap, but they're not, they're not like one-to-one related necessarily. But I wanted to talk about this because it's something that I've been working with recently and I think it's a, a beneficial way to structure Rails application. So to kind of frame it a little bit, when I first started doing Rails for the first couple of years at least, I was kind of under the impression subconsciously that all my code in the models had to go into active record models. That's just, that's where it goes. And it took me a couple of years. I read this post by Steve Klabnik. It said, hey, you don't have to put all your code in active record models. You can just create plain old Ruby objects and they can go into app models if you want or wherever you want to put them, but you're not limited to just active record models. You can make your own classes. And after that, that was kind of an eye-opening moment. And now I, nowadays I do that a lot. I will create my own objects and it's really helpful in kind of decluttering those uh, active record models, which have a tendency to grow really large. So don't you then just get like a big, huge, long list of files in your models folder? You do. But that is better, I think, than having a big, long list of methods inside of each active record model. Yeah. I tend to organize things a bit more outside the MVC folder structure. So under the app folder, I'll also have a decorators folder or a presenters folder, form helpers, 
service objects, and stuff like that. And within each one of those, I will usually create an application service or application decorators file, which is my parent class that all the other related files within there is going to inherit from. So it's just a way for me to take the idea of having plain old Ruby objects, extract them out of the models folder, and I try to keep the models folder for really the things that are tied to active record. So maybe those could be, that folder could be named better, I think. But for the most part, for me, that's a way of organizing. So whenever I'm within the code base, one, I'm going to be able to identify that type of object because it's going to start with like a service, colon, colon, whatever. And it also allows me to have uh, quicker visibility on what that view or what that what those calls are actually intending to do do you put all your uh, all your service objects i guess you call them dave in like a service namespace yeah yeah got it okay it's, it's interesting to hear how you structure your rails applications i've been doing it a little differently and it's kind of like a work in progress in terms of like i don't know that i've figured out the way that i'm 100% happy with yet but I'll start off just having my poros inside of app models. And then I'll kind of live with it for a while and see how it feels. And it seems like over time, it kind of groups emerge. Like, for example, in the application I'm working in right now, it's an application for managing a medical clinic. And so there, there emerged a group that was relative to appointments and scheduling. And so I created like a schedule namespace some of the stuff inside the schedule namespace was active record models. Some of it was poros. Just recently, I created a new namespace called accounting because it became clear that I had kind of a group of, of objects that were related to accounting. And I kind of always, periodically, I step back and just kind of do an LS on app models. And if it seems to be growing too large, I will refactor in namespace stuff so that it's... Uh, so it's not just a huge long list of files. Now, one thing that I'm curious about, because I've seen people do this in a lot of different ways, like I've seen it where instead of necessarily having, say, service objects or um, I forget what they call them, value objects, I guess, where it sort of takes a string like a phone number and then it deserializes it so it pulls out the area code and the international code and all that stuff, right? So then you use the phone number type and you do dot area code, right? And you get the area code off of it. And, you know, if you have to reason about it that way in your app that makes that really simple. And then you come around to the other way of doing things where instead of having that, they just have like a series of convenience methods that you import with a module. Or, you know, they have a module that, you know, you essentially pass it in in a functional manner instead of using object-oriented methods. So, you know, you have, um, you know, phone number parser dot, you know, area code, and then you pass in the phone number and it, you know, yanks it off. And I'm curious, have you tried all these different methods and have you found specific trade-offs between them? I haven't done the value object thing in particular. I've come across that and it looks like it could be compelling in certain cases. I just haven't encountered in any of my applications like a level of, of pain that that would alleviate, you know? So the value object thing, I, I have not done myself. Yeah, I have. And the thing that I find it useful for is for things that are more complex generally than a phone number, right? 
because mm-hmm. the, the phone number doesn't have a whole lot of functionality around it that you need unless you're like making calls or sending texts to it or things like that where where you have you know a complicated process that that it has to manage if you're just using it to parse a string that's pretty mundane for a value object but yeah if if you've got other behaviors around it similar with like email senders right i mean we have mailer objects that do that in rails and it's the same idea there where you're essentially setting up a, a sender that's a text object instead of a mailer and you set things up that way but and so you use the value object to represent something that has uh, complicated behavior around it but is built around you know one or two data fields i guess that are pretty simple like a phone number yeah i i actually have a couple examples that i wanted to bring up because it might be easier for people to kind of grasp if we have I mean, the value object thing is a good example too, but I I have a couple examples. One is kind of like a concrete example and another is a more abstract example. So in this application I'm building right now for the medical clinic, there's rules around patients being able to receive a certain medicine. It has to do with like their insurance status and some other things. It's not particularly simple. And so I actually created a... um, a new object, which the name of it, okay, so this, this medicine is called ILEA. And so the, the object I created is called ILEA administration. So the idea is that there's, you know, the act of giving the person this ILEA medicine, I call that an ILEA administration. And then the ILEA administration has methods like, I think there's just one called dot okay question mark. And if it is okay to give that patient ILEA, then an icon shows up green. If it's not, then the icon shows up red. But then underneath that dot okay method on ILEA administration, it does a bunch of other stuff under the hood that I don't want to like, I don't want to bother myself with those details in other parts of the application because it's just too low level. So that's a case where like I created a Poro. It's kind of concrete because it maps to like a real world act of giving somebody some medicine. By the way, the the physical way that that medicine is administered is they stick a needle into your eyeball and inject it into your eyeball with no anesthesia. You're just awake and they stick a needle in your eye. Sign me up. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I I need to go in the other room for a minute now. Right. And the more abstract example that I have is in the scheduling functionality of this application, you can't just schedule an appointment anytime at all. We have what we call availability blocks. And if you're scheduling something, okay, so the availability blocks recur. They might recur every Wednesday. But let's say you're scheduling this. It's a Friday and the appointments recur on Wednesdays. And so the logic needs to figure out like, okay, when is the first occurrence of this series? And that's actually pretty complicated to figure out when that happens. So I created an object called first occurrence. And first occurrence has like eight different small methods inside of it so that I can just instantiate a first occurrence. And then I think it has like a dot date or something like that. That way, I don't need to be concerned in other places what the details are of figuring out when that first occurrence is. I can just do first occurrence dot new dot date or whatever it may be, 
And, and that's all I have to concern myself with in that area. And I find that most of my poros tend to be of that latter type. It's not like something that maps to a real world concept. It's like I have these really like nuts and bolts type ideas in my application and those are what my poros end up being. Yeah. And, you know, going from a fat model to a plain old Ruby object or a poro, I think that it accomplishes many things, but it also has some drawbacks too. One, for the positives, it cleans up the model. So you have more things that are directly related to just that model and just that one responsibility. It makes it easier to test if you're not testing huge, large models. Instead, you're testing a bunch of smaller services or different Ruby objects. But at the same time, it also adds to a bit of overhead to the application because someone who is not familiar with the application structure, what's available, and how things are laid out, they could end up recreating some of the things that you've already created, especially if it's not commonly found throughout the application. So there's going to be a larger ramp-up time, I think, the more plain Ruby objects that you create throughout the application because unless if you have an index of all those, you won't have that kind of visibility. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely the case. Have you experienced cases, Dave, where that's happened? Somebody recreated something that already existed just because they didn't know? I've seen it, yeah. And usually it's with... um, (laughs) I've usually seen it happen quite a bit with CSS classes. So someone doesn't... You know, realize that, oh, you know, either this already exists within the CSS framework, so they recreate it, or they didn't realize that we already had a certain styling method for a type of button or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that kind of thing happens a lot. I've definitely done it. Those are kind of the types of poros that I find myself creating. Do you guys have any particular methodologies for like how you decide? when you want to create a new Poro? If I find logic getting too complicated in a model or controller, or even in a view, if I need to display something a lot more complex, then I'll usually reach for creating my own Ruby class around that idea. And typically, I will even go so far as to break it up and namespace it pretty heavily. So each file is no more than 50 lines. And I just extract out ideas. So basically, if I create a new service object, you know, um, I don't have a good example right now, but let's say I create a folder under my app folder called services. I then create my application service, which is going to have some boilerplate code where on that object, you can have a dot success or dot errors or dot error with a question mark to get some of that consistency within a service object. I'll then create a namespace for the type of object that I'm going to be working on. So if it is a... Again, I don't have any concrete examples. I can pull up one of my applications and look. But I'll use heavy namespacing within there because I don't like making it to where it is going to be all in one large folder, many different ideas. I like having it segregated out. So one good example is on Drift of Ruby, I created stickers. So the idea of stickers is that you 
perform some kind of action, watch a video, subscribe for a month, or like a certain number of videos, and then you get a sticker. It's like a badge or an achievement or whatever you want to call them. And the idea there is that throughout the application, there's going to be a lot of references of a action that would then need to call out to a sticker. So I have a folder for service objects under my app folder, and then I have the stickers service. And then within there, I have all the different types of stickers that someone could achieve and all the business logic around them within there. And throughout the application, instead of calling each one of those individually, I just call the class name and throw that into a background job, active job to then process in the background. Okay. Yeah, it sounds like you structure those a little differently for me. I don't have all my, well, first of all, I, I don't use the term service objects, but I, I don't have them all inherit from a common object. And you mentioned a couple like methods that the, that the parent will have, like success and stuff like that. Can you like talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so the success method is really checking to see if there are not any failures. So it is the opposite of the failure question mark method, which just checks for errors.any. And that's just simply a hash, an array of hashes that's going to get raised within my service object. If there are any errors, then it's going to simply add those in and wherever you are calling the service object within your application, you're going to be able to do something like a, if the service dot success, then do something else. Then, you know, there's errors that you can handle or display the errors accordingly. So do most of your service objects take the form of like some kind of job that needs to be carried, carried out or something like that? It really depends. If it needs immediate user interaction, then I don't background process it. But if it's something that does not need user interaction, so like the sticker service, for example, then it goes into a background job. Yeah, I don't necessarily mean like background job type thing, but if you have a a success method that kind of implies that like it's a task that gets carried out, which can either be successful or a failure, as opposed to like my example of a... uh, first occurrence object where it, it finds the first occurrence of a series of appointments. There's, that's not really a thing that's being done. It's just like a, uh, uh, some data that's being processed, not processed. It's some logic that's being checked as opposed yeah. to something that's being carried out. So really for the errors that I have, they are generated through guard clauses in many cases where If, for your example, getting the first schedule, if that relies on having a user present to be able to find the last time administered or the first time administered for that patient, then it's going to raise a exception or it's going to add to the errors that a user is required or a first date is required or an anchor date is required. So that way it's actually kind of treating it similar to what you would find with the form object, where if you do a, you know, this active record dot save, else you can then render out the errors, and then you have a list of all the errors, an array of the errors. Got it. Okay. It's interesting to hear this because my approach is completely different. (laughs) Different from, (laughs) from either of us? Yeah, so the way that I tend to do it is... I try and group the same kinds of methods together when I 
have my models. And so what tends to happen is like it's, okay, these are all the scheduling methods and these are all of the do this kind of work methods and these are all the other this kind of work methods. And once I get about four or five of them together, then I start really looking at them and going, okay, you know, do I need another object for this, right? So uh, it's, it's, a, it's another thing doer. And so I move it out to a thing doer.rb, you know, and then I'll, but that way it can maintain whatever state it needs to do its job. And then it, it does whatever it does. And then, you know, the initializer and, you know, things like that from then on, just call out to, to whatever object I created to create that object and then to, to manage the state that way. Yeah, that's actually pretty similar to how I do it, Chuck. My poros will usually begin life as a series of of methods in some active record object. Cause like you don't always know super early on that that there's gonna be too much stuff in there. It's like yeah. you had one method today and then three weeks from now you have four related methods and it's like, okay, at this point I call it a missing abstraction. Like there's an abstraction that probably should exist. Like it really does exist in the real world. Your code just doesn't reflect that yet. And so that, that group of methods kind of maps to that missing abstraction. And I say, oh, okay, I have all this code here that tries to figure out the first occurrence of a series. I think there's really a missing abstraction called first occurrence. And so this group of four methods or whatever, that should be pulled out into its own object. Yep. The other thing that I look at, though, is that sometimes they do the same kind of thing, but they're not going to move at the same time. So they're not going to get changed at the same time. And I find that that defeats the purpose of moving them out into their own object. And this is the single responsibility principle. Mm -hmm. Um, If you listen to Uncle Bob, it's not, hey, these all do the same job. It's these are all going to change at the same time. And so, you know, when I'm editing this, I'm probably going to have to edit that and that and that. And so they tend to be part of the same process as well. And so, you know, if, if they kind of meet both of those criteria, that's when I move them out. Because then when I need to go and edit that process, you know, again, that's why I call it thing doer, right? They're all part of that thing that's getting done. Then it makes sense, right? Because then I'm basically editing that one process. And then I have one file and one class that I'm dealing with in order to, to think about that one process. And then I may have to modify the other object that I pulled it out of or the other class I pulled it out of. But at that point, it's just, modifying it so that the, the way that I call it is consistent with the class that I modified. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs. And this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash rogues. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. Yeah, what you were saying is kind of reminding me of something I consider an anti-pattern, which I see kind of a lot. And I know you don't actually call your class thing doer, obviously. You give it, you give it no, a real but name. I like calling it something that reflects what it actually does. So it's, yeah. it's this process or this 
you know, this uh, set of things that get done or, you know, this way of thinking about these particular processes or, you know, things like that. So thing doers is kind of a shorthand for me. Yeah. Yeah. And the the anti-pattern I was going to mention is like, if an object ends in ER, it's probably a sign that you're not really quite capturing the meaning of that abstraction yet. Like, especially if it's called manager. Um, Like I've seen (laughs) classes with names like customer manager. It's like, okay, that can do all kinds of stuff. Better to have a name that's like an actual noun or something like that. I don't know what the word is for for the kind of word that I'm thinking of, but like if it ends in ER, it's probably not really specific enough. Right. And and again, you know, so then you're talking about like maybe you have customers and then you have like customer relationships or you have uh, sponsorships or, you know, whatever, whatever the relationship is to whatever other things in the system they have. But then you can name those and you can put, that's the other thing that I find is a lot of times I'll actually spin out instead of a Poro, I'll spin out an actual active record model and I'll move data over to it because at that point I've been managing the object and its relationships to other objects on the same uh, model. And so I need another model that manages the data specifically for that relationship and how that works. And so in that case, it's appropriate instead of using a Poro, actually using a a full-on active record model. That makes sense. I I ran into this case recently where I think I'm about to do that. I I started off with patients who have address fields right in the same table. But then I ended up with other things that have address fields and it, it made sense to have a new address table. But now I have this weird situation where I have a patient's table with all the address fields in it and then other models that just point to an address record. And so I think what I'm going to want to do is split the patient model so that instead of having all the address fields in it, it just points to an address record. But the reason I've been hesitant to do that just yet is because that means I'm going to have to do a data migration to move all those addresses. And that's, uh, that's not without risk. Yeah. And I love writing those and people get all kinds of bent out of shape. I, <laughs> when I do those, I tend to put them into rake tasks and then run that as part of my, part of my deployment. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, there, there's not really a clean way to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, doing it in a rake task, I think is a great way to do it. There's just, there's no way to do that. That's completely free of risk. No, that's true. I mean, back up your database that mitigates yeah. a lot of the risk, but yeah. You're right. Yeah, what, what probably is the best way to do that kind of thing that I usually do if I can is like, I don't flip the switch all in one go. Like I'll make it so that I have the new way alongside the old way, at least very temporarily, and then take away the, the old way. That, that's fair. Yeah. It also gives you a chance to see what breaks without really risking too much. Just yeah, always to- have a rollback plan. Yeah, and a couple other patterns that I've used is the actual active record concerns. So within the models folder, there's a concerns folder. And if I find myself creating something over and over, so like a token for a record. So if I have a user, a product, an order that has a token attribute, then I'll usually just initially start off creating that token within the user model. You know, just as a uh, before create callback, calls a private method, generates a token. 
And as I start using that in other instances, then I'll create a token generator concern and then extract out the code into a concern and then just include that module within each one of my records or my models that will be using it. Yeah, I'm a fan of that way of of doing things. Yeah, we, also we touched on URL slugs. Yeah, um, I think you said token generator, Dave. That's a case where I would I would do that differently. I would do I would have generate a token, token class and then dot generate instead. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to hear the the different ways that we approach this because once you get outside of like completely coloring inside the lines that Rails gives you. There's a lot of room for like individual discretion. Well, oh, yeah. the other thing, especially with tokens, is that depending on your use case, putting tokens in their own tables is overkill versus yeah. storing them on the object. And in other cases, it makes total sense, depending on how you're managing the tokens, to put them in their own table. So, yeah. And my thing, you know, I'm not a name Nazi, so to speak. I don't know if that's a politically correct word, but. I don't worry about it too much about the name. So a token generator or generate token, it doesn't bother me because if I read that either way, I know exactly what it does. And that's what really matters to me is that at a first glance, you have an inherent understanding of what that object is going to do. Yeah. Yeah, that case is probably fine because it's very unlikely that your token generator class will expand to have more responsibilities besides just generating a token. And another thing that I started doing a little bit more recently is extracting things out into a gem. So if I work on a couple of different projects and there is some common cross between the different projects. Nothing on the view-related side. So I'm really talking about just plain old Ruby object gems, not engines, Rails engines. So I started extracting things out into the lib folder. So within my Rails application, I will, if there is something I want to extract out to a gem, because it's going to be used by this application as well as another one, or if I want to have a separate team focus specifically on this gem or its responsibilities, then extracting it out into the lib folder within my actual application is just a first step in the process of extracting out the logic because I can then continue to extract things out into my lib folder and I would structure the naming files within the lib folder the same way that it would be for a gem. So if I'm creating a gem, let's say, for example, the generate token or token generator, then I would extract it out of the model. I would create a generate token.rb within my lib folder, a generate token folder, and then within that folder, I would have my plain old Ruby objects to do the logic. And I find doing that, I can then extract that code out of my application when my tests are still all running and passing because you really shouldn't have to do any kind of change within your application for your tests and stuff. They should still just work as they were before. You can then create a new gem, mount the path within your gem file, extract the code, from your lib folder over into the gem. And you should be able to, for the most part, copy and paste it because you're following the same convention of how a gem is laid out. 
And, you know, it's just another way of creating Ruby objects, but a different level of abstraction to your code. Yeah, I've done similar stuff. I actually had a project where I, I extracted something into a gem and then I kind of painted myself into a corner and brought it back into the application. But I found that when I'm creating poros, I have two different kinds. One is like poros that are very specific to that application. And the mm-hmm. other is poros that don't necessarily have anything to do with that particular application. So the former kind, the application specific ones, I'll put those in app models and the other kind that aren't specific to, to my like domain models and stuff, I'll put those in the live folder. And those could certainly be candidates for extracting into a, a gem because they don't refer to anything that's specific to that application and they can be used for anything. Yeah, makes sense to me. Do you ever create uh, singleton objects that are like config objects or things like that? I haven't done that. I've created some larger percenter objects that had a its own config file, so to speak, which you know I guess uses um, the singletons, but not not often. Yeah, I've I've done it a couple of times, but yeah, again, not very often. Usually, an initializer is plenty, but I have seen other people do it and and heavily use them. So, well, I don't think I have a whole lot more to add. Just one more thing that I'll that I'll mention, just because I found it pretty useful, is like when I'm working on legacy projects and I come across a big long method or a big long class or something like that, I'll use the extract method refactoring or the extract class refactoring. Mm -hmm. Those are both techniques from the Martin Fowler refactoring book. And that can be a nice way to like make the code more testable and more easily understandable. Take a chunk of like five lines out of a method or class or, or whatever and make my my own new class out of that, it can be a good way to um, start to make a beachhead in a big, like, monolithic, difficult piece of code. That makes sense. So one other thing that I'm, I'm curious about is that a lot of people, they, they get their testing on. Do you find that uh, moving these things out to Poros makes it easier or harder to test? I think easier because smaller things are easier to test than bigger things in general. And so poros are, you know, a large number of small poros. Each thing is going to be smaller than just one single large active record model or whatever. And so each individual test, each individual class, I find easier to test because it's smaller. I agree with the caveat that it has to be well-factored and well-organized. Yeah. Otherwise, what you wind up with, and this is something that I was alluding to, and I have seen in several projects where, you know, somebody got advice similar to this. And so they go and they start pulling stuff out into its own class all over the place. And what you wind up with is you wind up with a models folder that has, you know, 30, 40, 50, 80 models in it. And it's really hard to figure out where the code you need to edit is. And then, you know, the tests become kind of the same thing where you have this junk drawer full of stuff. And, you know, trying to figure out what's testing what and where and how and, you know, is it, is it doing an integration test between these three things that are all related or not? It can turn into a massive mess. And so oh, yeah. you have to be deliberate about what you pull out and you have to understand why you're pulling it out and how it goes together or you're going to create real problems for yourself. Yeah, just like any technique, it's possible to apply a good technique badly. 
Yep. Yeah, and also when you're extracting things, if you're having to, when you instantiate your Ruby object, pass in five, ten different attributes or parameters into that object, then you're probably abstracting it wrong because then testing actually gets more difficult on those objects because you're having to stub or create all these other dependencies just to test that object. So be on the lookout for that too. If on the whole you have not made your life simpler and easier by having pulled something out into a Poro, that's probably a good time to take a step back and ask if you should maybe uh, come at it again from a different direction. Yeah, and speaking to Dave's point, you know, if you have to stub out a whole bunch of stuff, I find the tests are kind of the canary in the coal mine. I won't see it or feel it when I'm writing the code and when I'm plugging everything in together. But when I'm pulling the test together, it gets really hairy because I have to go stub all that stuff out. That's usually a signal to me that I have overcomplicated my life and that I need to go back and look at that because it's going to come apart somehow later. And sometimes it's unavoidable to have that level of complexity. You know, I've always found myself working on those more complex applications where to do a simple test, it is actually reliant on the data and 10 to 20 other models just because of the complexity of what it's actually doing. So stubbing those out is a huge pain. And eventually what I did was create a genesis method, which at the top of the test run, it's going to run this genesis method, which stubs out all the necessity parts of the application. And it adds time to the test run, but you're talking about uh, a fraction of a second you know, per test run. So it adds maybe a minute or two to the entire test run, which for the simplicity of life, I'm actually okay with because my CICD is going to be running the tests, not me on my local computer. You know, I'll have Guard or something like that running on my local machine. So it's just testing it as I go. But yeah, it, it definitely gets a lot more complicated and you start second-guessing life when you have to deal with those kind of things. Yep. All right. Any other considerations we should make before we uh, go to picks? I'm good. As a Ruby developer, you've probably used Redis for queuing and caching. But if you're like me, you've never completely understood it. You just followed the tutorial to set it up and then hoped it'd stay up. Now that I'm building my own services for other people, I realize that you and I often don't have the desire or time to run an ops or DevOps team or do it yourself. Plus, since you're not a Redis expert, you're not exactly sure how to know what it's doing. That's why I love Redis Green. No setup. It runs on any AWS region I want, so I can run it near me. And the tooling is amazing. I have to tell you about this feature, actually. It actually maps the memory you're using and tells you where all the memory is allocated. So this makes it really easy to see what's going on in your Redis setup. It also runs on AWS, so it scales easily and can alert you when it hits certain thresholds in performance or capacity. Sorry for going all fanboy on you, but I love this tool. Here's the thing. If you don't want to do ops or are already on Heroku or something, then use Redis Green for the rest. It's simple yet powerful. Check them out at redisgreen.net. All right, Dave, you have some picks for us? Yeah, sure. One is the gem called Reek. I guess in spirit of our talk about Ruby objects and code quality, uh, Reek is basically a gem or tool 
that allows, it's going to give you a report of all the quote code smells within your application. So it's a really cool thing to kind of make sure that you're developing in a good way, but or an opinionated way rather. But at the same time, it can be really depressing if you're running it on a older application that you developed. So just be on the lookout for that. And just pair that with stuff like Breakman, I think are really good combos. So you're doing a static code analysis testing and you're also doing a level of quality code and then with RuboCop. So if you have all three of those running in your CICD platform, then you're going to be able to ensure some level of quality of the code of your application as well as its security. And then I had one other uh, pick and it's Kubernetes. I've kind of really dived deep into the Kubernetes world over the past month. And just doing a lot of this stuff is really cool within there. Just I like its overall idea. I'm not convinced on a production usage of Kubernetes yet, but in a CICD world, I think Kubernetes is really awesome to be able to stand up your application code in a disposable environment so you can test it out before you ship it out to production. And you can near mimic your production environment within the Kubernetes via Docker containers. Nice. I'm going to jump in here with a few picks. So I've been playing with an app. It looks like they're going to be a sponsor of the show, just to throw that out there. But <laughs> I have deployed my own Rails apps for <laughs> more than 10 years. And, uh, you know, so I go set up the server and, you know, maintain the, put the apps up. And then, you know, I have to go in periodically and remember to update the servers and update the apps. And yeah, pain. <laughs> I didn't realize how much I... You know, I wanted to just have it done for me until I checked out Cloud 66. And this this was a pick that came up in uh, the episode where you all talked to uh, uh, Stefan about deployments. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it's an awesome app and I'm, I'm really, really digging it. And initially I used it to set up a staging environment because uh, I'm working on an app with another Rails developer. And so, you know, we're, we're having conversations about the app and what it should do. And, you know, I want to be able to push his changes up to staging and then, you know, yank the database over from production so that we can play with real data and then push it to production if it's ready. And so that, that's been really, really nice to have that all set up. And yeah, it took a couple of, I had to tell it to deploy a couple of times because I didn't have everything set up just right. But now I've got it so that it's, it's pushing live to staging and so I'm I'm pretty happy about that. So yeah, I, I'm going to pick Cloud 66. And then I mentioned before the show to Jason and Dave that I have a couple of projects going. So one is this Rails app that I'm talking about. It's called PodWrench. And um, it's a tool for managing podcast uh, production systems. So your editors and show notes. I'm hoping to be able to connect it to people's websites so that you just put the information in there. And then, you know, at the scheduled time, it you know, releases the episode on the RSS feed and on the website and all that good stuff. And so I'm working on that right now. And then the other end of it is the sponsorship end of things, which is pretty much put together. And that's mainly because I needed it. And so I built that first. And so if you're a podcaster and you're looking for a system, I am looking for beta users. I'm probably going to have things finished to a usable state and then start onboarding the devchat.tv shows to it within the next month or so. And then I'm hoping to do a launch in June to get the word out for it. 
so I'm pretty excited about that. And then the other thing that I've been working on is actually a booth, like a physical podcasting booth. So with walls and windows, I'm putting windows into it. If you've been to any of the podcasting conferences, Buzzsprout goes around and uh, has a booth like that. And in fact, I stopped at PodFest a couple of weeks ago and asked them about it. And the guy I was talking to turned out to be a Rails developer for Buzzsprout. And it turned out that one of their development team members had built the booth. <laughs> and they, they've been taking it to the, the shows, the podcasting shows for years. So um, I'm putting something like that together. I'm trying to get it out to more of the conferences. And it's been kind of interesting, the kind of response that I've been getting. So I offered to take it up to NGConf and set it up, which is here in Salt Lake. And that's a little bit complicated because I'm actually taking my kids to the kids track where they teach the kids to code. So I'm going to be taking a three-year-old, a seven-year-old, a nine-year-old, or a 10-year-old, sorry, and a 12-year-old and a 13-year-old all up to this conference in my truck with the podcasting booth in the back. (laughs) And then I'm going to be pulling it down after the conference, which is going to be really fun. I think they're called stagehands. Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're implying that they're going to help. And uh, for certain non-zero or maybe zero values of help, yeah, they they might. So anyway, that'll be fun. And I'm really looking forward to that. I have been talking to a few other conferences. Some of them have been more receptive than others. It seems like kind of the the, the mid-level ones seem the most receptive to it. So those are the ng-confs, you know, where they're kind of organized by community members. I'm probably going to try and get it out to like ElixirConf and things like that. ReactConf, just because the organizers are community members, even if it's, you know, financially supported by Facebook. But like, I've been trying to get into the O'Reilly conferences with it. And they, they're a little bit more regimented about the way that they give out space at the conference. And so it's, it's been kind of a little bit different approach. They haven't said no but I've been talking a lot to them in order to get them to say yes. So hopefully I can get them to say yes, we can make it a big win, and then I can go out in future years. But going out with the podcasting booth, my intention is not to, hey, you know, come meet us at devchat.tv's booth. My intention is, is to bring it out, work with the conference to bring out as many podcasters as we can get, give them a space to record because... You know, I want to record with some of the speakers, but so do they. I don't need to need to be recording the whole time, and then make it work. So I'm pretty excited about it. And yes, I have to have it built within a month uh, as we record this. So what I'm imagining, Chuck, is that it's kind of a mobile booth that that you kind of wear, and so every time anybody sees you at the conference, you'll just be walking around inside this this booth that you're just carrying. There, there we go. That's how you should do it. Yeah, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, I'm recording a podcast. No, I'm just kidding. No, it's about eight feet tall. It's probably six by six or seven by seven. Yeah, it has oh, windows. Wow, it's on bigger the than I expected. I was thinking like phone yeah, booth. No. And then usually the venues will provide a table, chairs, and electricity. I'll provide the recording equipment. So I'll bring out a couple of Sure SM58s and uh, Zoom H6. And yeah, so you can record. We'll get you the recordings and we'll get it up. And then one other thing, I'm just going to throw this out really fast because I have been rambling and I want Jason to have a turn. But uh, I just set up um, Programming Podcaster Slack. So if you have podcast about code, uh, let me know and you'll get an invite. I dropped it into the chat on this episode for Dave and Jason. And I'm probably going to see if I can get the rest of the dev chat folks to join it. 
But I really want a place where, you know, since we're all kind of working on the same kinds of things, that we can collaborate on things, we can cross promote, we can do crossover episodes and things like that. And then um, one last thing that I'm going to throw out there. So we're starting a bunch of new shows on devchat.tv here within the next six months. And one thing that I realized is that in some cases, there are podcasts that have stopped producing because the production process for them was really onerous or they couldn't find sponsors. And if you know of one of these shows, let me know. I would love to reach out to the people who run the shows and see if I can either help them find sponsors, help them get their production done, or just bring it into devchat.tv. So, and you know, in, in which case, then we would do both. Anyway, if, if there's a show out there that you're like, man, this was a great show, but they're not doing it anymore, let me know. And if you are a podcaster and you want to be part of devchat.tv, let me know about that too, and we'll talk about it. And uh, yeah, that's all of my long, 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 long rambling picks. Jason, do you have some picks for us? I got a few picks. The first two are books that I've been reading recently, one I'm currently reading. The Sandy Mex book, Practical Object-Oriented Design in Ruby, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. That's been really good. It's one of those books that I heard about a thousand times and then I finally just bought it because I'd heard about it so many times and it's good. Other similar story with uh, Refactoring by Martin Fowler. It had been on my Amazon wish list for like eight years and then I finally bought it. And I don't know why I didn't buy it many years ago because it's super useful. So I recommend both those books. I'll mention my podcast again, the Ruby Testing Podcast. I recently had Kent Beck on there, which was pretty cool. I told my wife because I was all excited and she's like, who's that? But maybe people listening will will care about that because that's, you know, it's like the Michael Jordan of uh, programming or something. So rubytestingpodcast.com, you can, you can go get it there or just search for it on your podcast player or whatever. And then again, my website is codewithjason.com. Again, Rails testing, if you want to learn about Rails testing, I talk all about that on that site. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming, Jason. It's always fun to talk and catch up, see where you're at. Yeah, um, thanks for having me. Yeah. But uh, yeah, everybody go check out his podcast. And uh, we'll wrap this up and we will catch everyone next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.